0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Fago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first joining us is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military and unmanned systems. And we're honored that he joins us every Monday for an update uh, on this extraordinary war. Sam, I hope you had a great weekend and welcome back to the program. Thanks, Vago. Good to be back. Uh, A pleasure having you uh, back on. And before we get started, today's program is brought to you by HII. HII is the largest producer of undersea unmanned vehicles in every class, making transoceanic missions possible. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Uh, Sam, uh, Ukraine uh, has been on the offensive. It's been using its unmanned uh, fleet of systems, Uh, to strike Russian uh, facilities, uh, naval as well as cargo uh, vessels. There's uh, an amphibious ship uh, that's been uh, struck. It's used uh, long range uh, um, both uh, scalp as well as storm shadow uh, weapons to d- uh, severely damage two very important bridges that the Russians use for resupply uh, to uh, Crimea. Uh, w- walk us through what the Ukrainians are doing and how they're doing it, because there are the long range unmanned systems that they're using, uh, aerial systems they're using against Moscow. Uh, they're using some Western systems, but then they're also using sea surface drones uh, to to really great and devastating effect walk us through sort of what's in the ukrainian arsenal on this long-range unmanned force
1: that they've created well there's two real uh, directions here number one ukraine is continuing to degrade russian logistical capability this was a decision made some time ago as the russians were digging in on the, all along the large front and so ukraine uh, made the uh, operational decision to strike at russian logistical and supply lines supply chains uh, facilities, warehouses, et cetera, to really try and degrade Russian forces stationed at the front. Uh, this is a long-term project. This uh, w- The results won't be visible right away, but uh, we are seeing some spectacular successes. Ukraine is using a combination of both manned and unmanned systems. Over the last couple of days, Ukraine used unmanned maritime systems that it has recently built and unveiled to a relatively devastating effect. Uh, it was able to damage and nearly sink several russian ships it demonstrates that russian preparedness isn't even and it is not evenly applied for example in crimea around sevastopol and other russian naval bases there's a lot of defenses against both uavs and maritime drones that ukraine is using at the same time the strike on the Varsysk, uh, basically on unvi- the uh, unveiled the fact that Russia really was not preparing for this type of an attack. There were no defenses of the kind that are present in, uh, in the Crimea right now along the Russian facilities. So th- there's a big difference between what the Russians are doing immediately at the front and what they're trying to do elsewhere, even when the danger from Ukrainian counterattacks is, um, is really apparent. And uh, the second development is Ukraine is continuing to use a combination of different types of weapons, and systems, including a growing share of unmanned systems, to really try and stress Russian air defenses, and again, logisticals—excuse uh, me, logistical and supply chains and uh, uh, and efforts.
0: Um, let me uh, take you to the real-world impact that's having on operations. What is the impact that it's having on Russian operations at this point?
1: Well, it's hard to uh, it's hard to establish it uh, right now. We are, of course. Uh, discussing it at a a significant distance from the actual fighting. Ukraine is achieving successes in certain parts of the front. Um, It is capable, Ukrainian military is capable of pushing Russians out of certain locations, certain villages. Russians are also counterattacking, but it's a grind. And we've been talking about it for months at this point. Uh, Russians were able to dig in, And uh, they were able to achieve a favorable position, favorable defensive position, along some parts of the front. Along other parts of the front, Ukraine was able to use its combination of weapons to degrade and push the Russians out of their positions. But again, this is taking time, uh, and uh, it is a a slow process. And Ukrainian military has admitted such, and uh, a lot of observers around the world are also admitting that this is uh, going to be a much slower process than originally anticipated months ago.
0: Um, uh, Let me take you uh, to Russian uh, capabilities. I was talking to a Western uh, military leader. You know, we were talking about, you know, what the Russians are doing, you know, how the Ukrainians are doing and what he thought was interesting. And one of the things he thought that was interesting was, look, he said, since the beginning of this um, conflict, um, the Russians have been firing between 20 and 30 cruise missiles uh, and up to that number of long range unmanned uh, drones every other day in these barrages across uh, Ukraine. And he said, I'm not sure any other country on the planet would be able to do that and sustain it over such a long period of time. Obviously, the Russians are getting help from the Chinese. They're getting help from the North Koreans and the Iranians. How does what the Ukrainians are doing compare against the onslaught that comes every, you know, we have a tendency of thinking of these as isolated cruise missiles that are, or indiscriminate fires that are hitting apartment buildings as opposed to actually concerted long range aviation and supportive long range precision strikes that are really taxing um uh, ukraine's defensive abilities right i mean the whole russian idea is at some point the russians and the, uh, the ukrainians and the west are going to deplete their air defenses in in this area how, how do we need to think about what the russians are doing on a consistent basis to stress ukraine
1: well if you read russian announcements russian uh, russian explanations of these strikes Each time uh, their missile lands somewhere, it's because it hit a Ukrainian military facility of one type or another. Uh, For example, an assembly plant for drones, a military facility that assembles military equipment and engines, a military warehouse. And the fact that some of these are positioned in civilian areas, basically Russians uh, justify as Ukraine trying to sort of hide and disperse its capabilities along the civilian population. That is, of course, the Russian explanation, and that is not the correct explanation because a lot of these missiles are actually hitting civilian buildings, civilian facilities, civilian energy infrastructure. And concurrent with a Russian explanation that they're trying to justify such strikes as against military, not civilian targets, is of course the campaign for uh, basically a campaign that pressures. Ukrainian civilian population continues to plunge cities and towns across Ukraine into darkness, disrupt daily uh, life um, amongst millions of people in order to put enough pressure on the population to exhaust it enough for the Ukrainian population to what the Russians hope uh, is to basically start pressuring the government for some kind of compromise or an end of this war. Ukraine is using more precise strikes when it comes to military targets but it has also adopted a page out of uh, Russia's playbook. And so multiple Ukrainian drone strikes against uh, Moscow, for example, against what looked like civilian targets, for example, um, indicates that Ukraine is also willing to put pressure on um, civilian population in Russia to bring the war to Russia's doorstep, as the Ukrainian government said, and to basically put enough pressure on people uh, across the country, especially in Moscow, people who feel they should be safe and secure, for them to be stressed, for them to be scared, for them to be afraid for their lives, and for them to start asking questions of the government. Why is the military not defending against Ukrainian strikes? And when will this eventually stop? So it's in one way, basically, it's a tit for tat. In another um, instance, it's uh, it's basically each side trying to justify the attacks against military uh, infrastructure of course ukrainians are using uh, less systems by number than the russians russian uses rather indiscriminate and that is why ukraine is using uh, its uh, capabilities to strike at russia's logistical military and supply chain uh, routes and um, capabilities to try and slow down and degrade uh, russian uh, resistance
0: Um, How important is the help the Russians are getting from the Chinese, North Koreans, and Iranians?
1: Well, it depends. When it comes to the Shahed uh, Shahed, uh, drones, for example, that Russia is getting from Iran, that's a fairly significant assistance because we've talked a lot about Shahed capability as plugging the gap between short-range drones that Russia has and the cruise missiles that it wants to use in smaller numbers. The fact that Russia is building a factory with Iranian assistance, is also indicative of the uh, scope of Iranian help. Uh, Obviously, China may be helping in different ways, for example, in unrestricted trade and supply of certain components like microelectronics and uh, other key parts for Russian weapon systems, both for the military and the civilian economy. Uh, The North Korean assistance is basically uh, with weapons that were themselves made with using old Soviet uh, practices and uh, a lot of weapons that Korea is supplying to Russian military are basically um, still uh, usable by the Russian military because Russian military is also using old uh, Soviet legacy systems. Uh, The full extent of this assistance has been discussed, but is probably not fully known. Just like the full assistance that China provides, to Russia is not fully known, apart from several um, high-profile exposés in the Western media about uh, Chinese assistance. And of course, we've been following Iranian assistance to uh, Russia, and the fact that both countries have been sort of getting closer when it comes to -to military-to-military cooperation, military-technical cooperation, industrial cooperation between the two countries, along with discussions of kind of closer integration of the civilian economies between the two nations as well.
0: Roger Cohen of the New York Times had a a very in-depth article about the impact of the war on Russians and how Russia is sort of uh, how Putin is sort of trying to reshape uh, Russia. And if you look at it, the economic sanctions don't appear to be having a big impact. We've, um, you know, there's all manner of Western technology that's still getting uh, to Russia that are being incorporated in their weapons. We haven't stopped that flow. Um, uh, it was, I think he was talking to Peter uh, Tolstoy, uh, who's a Duma member, who was saying, "Hey, we're you know Europe is still buying our oil because our oil is going to India. It's getting refined and getting shipped uh, to Europe. So you know we're, we're still making a lot of oil money. Uh, at, at the end of the day, and their war production is up, right? Their, their factories are running 24/7. Ours uh, are not yet uh, running 24/7, and our artillery production rates, for example, aren't going to get to where they need to be." For another couple of months, I mean, are are we doing all we can to step up? And what is it that folks have to remember about Russia? Because these the sanctions haven't had a, the desired effect. The oligarchs haven't turned on Putin. Prigozhin may be a problem for Putin, but Putin is still in office, and whoever replaces Putin might be equally bad. Um, what's what's your sense on sort of the bigger strategic strokes here?
1: Well, we have to remember when sanctions are applied against a country like Russia with so many trade partners, we have to remember that um, the sanctions take time to take effect. And the fact that Russia still maintains trade relationship with practically uh, half of the world, it still maintains uh, a trade balance with China, it trades with India, Iran that we've just mentioned, many countries in the former Soviet space, Central Asia, Caucasus are still trading with Russia. Uh, Countries across the Middle East, Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia are still trading with Russia. And a lot of these nations are not part of the global sanctions. And so when Russia has so many avenues for import of all kinds of goods and services, including key components like microelectronics, then we have to be realistic about the effects of these sanctions are having right now and will have in the near future. Again, this is a long-term process each time Uh, Russia has sort of uh, a way of circumventing the sanctions. United States and the Western governments can identify other avenues in which sanctions can be applied. But as long as Russia continues to trade with the entire world still, then we have to be realistic about what some of these sanctions are capable of doing. Now, some sanctions have been very targeted and very precise and are having an effect. But other sanctions, again, will take quite a while considering that Russia can still trade and import what it wants uh, through many, many of its partners around the world, including in the former Soviet space.
0: Uh, I thought it was interesting. Uh, Saudi Arabia hosted uh, a peace conference uh, that Russia didn't uh, participate in. But what I thought was interesting is that Volodymyr uh, Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, took his case directly to Russia's allies, uh, which was uh, sort of an interesting, uh, interesting uh, dynamic, uh, and I don't think anybody expects, by the way, uh, there to be a negotiated settlement uh, to this anytime soon. Let me ask you one last uh, quick question: uh, Update on the unmanned war. I mean, obviously we've, we, you know, we discussed that a little bit in in sort of the broad nature, but you're always looking at even some of the smaller, granular trends. What's interesting in the past week about how unmanned systems are being used, and things you think are particularly
1: noteworthy? Well, again, greater emphasis on FPV drones. Those are racing drones, which are now used by both sides with devastating effect. Uh, FPV drones are now becoming more and more commonplace across the Russian military, and a lot of volunteer efforts are stepping up to manufacture uh, a lot more of these systems when months ago they could just do several hundred a month. Now some of these are moving to capacity where they can manufacture hundreds a week and perhaps thousands a month. And so the saturation of Russian front lines with these FPV drones is going to be problematic for the attacking Ukrainian military, just like Ukraine's use of FPV drones is also having a devastating effect on the Russians. But I also find it interesting that many of Russian civilian developments, UAV civilian developments, are eventually becoming part of the war. And so today, for example, Russian president spoke to the chairman of Rostock Corporation, Russia's biggest defense industrial conglomerate, and they were discussing progress that Rostec was making, and uh, they were going down the wish list of things that Putin wants from Rostec for the war. And one of the interesting discussions was a civilian quadcopter, excuse me, civilian um, helicopter type UAV, the BAS-200, which was uh, essentially developed by Rostec for um, shipping cargo to hard to reach regions like the Arctic and Siberia. this unmanned helicopter will now be used in the war in Ukraine. And so it's not surprising. How much um, much
0: payload does it have? Just out of curiosity, and what kind of range does it have?
1: So range is up to, I believe, 400 kilometers and uh, cargo capacity, 50 kilos. So it's a fairly substantial cargo that could be used. So so this uh, unmanned helicopter could be used for logistics, could be used for supply runs, maybe even evac, but also potentially some combat roles as well, like bombing runs. Again, unclear how they're going to do it. But the point is, many of Russia's civilian developments are going to end up in war if Russia continues to move the economy on the war footing the way it's been doing now. There's been resistance to doing it on a larger scale, but more and more civilian technologies are finding their way to the front. And now, again, officially from a company that developed what was supposed to be an ostensibly a civilian drone for cargo delivery and possibly even search and rescue.
0: Sam, always uh, a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Hope you have a great week uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks so much, Fargo.
0: And a quick word from our sponsors, Bell Sponsors, our daily coverage, HII Sponsors, our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems Sponsors, our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications Sponsors, our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace Sponsors, our air and naval coverage. And joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, I hope you guys had a great weekend and thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure Bago you uh, had uh, another uh, great note and your motto is a lot like IBM's and Frank Kendall's in God we Trust all others must bring data uh, yeah. you've uh, looked at a lot of data uh, and and let's start with what you've learned about federal shutdowns as well as continuing uh, resolutions what did you find
2: Well I think just because look we're in a bit of a lull here you know Congress is on recess but you know the, the main issues are going to be when they come back <laughs> from the August recess. You know, are they going to pass a continuing resolution to start uh, the fiscal year, or are we going to go right into a federal shutdown uh, beginning October 1st if they can't get that continuing resolution done? And, you know, what I looked at were basically um, the length (laughs) of shutdowns going back to fiscal year 1977. And you see that the vast majority of these, the full government shutdowns, only last a day or three. There are a couple of of longer ones. Uh, In 2019, you had a 35 day partial uh, federal shutdown. In other words, not all government agencies shut down, some were funded. Um, 16 days in 2014 and 21 days in 1996 were kind of the three uh, or four longest ones. There's another in 1979 that lasted 17 days. It was a partial shutdown. The point is, you know, I think for defense contractors, it really shouldn't matter for their financials. Um, You know, they're going to get paid eventually. I do think, and I want to, you know, acknowledge Bob Hale, uh, former comptroller of the Department of Defense, his observation, you know, kind of what these shutdowns do to the morale of federal employees when you're basically told like, hey, not only do you need to, uh, you're not going to get paid, but you can't do any work. Um, right. And it's just, it's not a way to instill good government. Um, you know, how do you motivate people if, if you're telling, you, you know, you're just worthless. You, you stay at home, don't do anything. And oh, by the way, we're not going to pay you. Um, you know, my own view, I'm kind of indifferent. If we start the fiscal year with a shutdown that lasts a week or maybe 10 days, you know, I might get a little more jumpy if it's if it's longer than that.
0: First, the, the psyche on the federal workforce only matters if you care about federal workers. If you don't care about federal workers and you think of them as, you know, useless partisan, yeah, part yeah. of a deep state, I mean, you, you you don't you're not particularly moved by them. And so the people who are motivated by them, you know, you would consider should also be motivated by the you know benefit and the impact on the American people, not just the federal workforce more broadly, right? I mean, it's just you shouldn't do it. There's a whole bunch of things you shouldn't do that, alas, unfortunately, that we do do. Um, you also look, though, at the amount of money that actually goes away when appropriations are slowed, right? right. Uh, talk to us a little bit about continuing resolutions and, and what you've learned about them historically, but also well, how much money actually evaporates in the process.
2: Well, I don't have a, a you know, it's going to vary each and every time, Vago. I suppose the, the simple question is, you know, obviously CRs are really more problematic um, and and frankly, a g- greater risk this go round. You know, the, again, this is data going back to two thousand and two, uh, the fiscal year two thousand two, not the calendar year. Um, and it's drawn from Congressional Research Service reports, but it basically shows, you know, if you look at this time period, the average length of a shutdown was around of, of a CR. I'm sorry, was around eighty four days. <clears throat> and I think, you know, the the most contractors, I think even the DoD has kind of gotten used to that. <clears throat> um, you know, you're you're kind of funded at last year's numbers. You can, um, you know, you haven't you have maybe a couple of anomalies, but for the most part, you know, you can't go through the rate increases. You can't uh, do new program starts. But I think the system has almost been, um, acclimated to that, and I know L three Harris in their in their earnings call specifically mentioned that their planning guidance assumed that we would start the year with the continuing resolution. The twist this year is because of the fiscal responsibility act in of twenty twenty three. You know, there's kind of a poison pill that you hope Congress doesn't take, which is if um, if any of the twelve different appropriations bills are still funded under a CR by January, uh, by yeah, January 3rd, by January 1st, <clears throat> uh, 2024, all funding will get reset at 99% of the FY23 level. So, you know, there's really no stipulation in the, um, in, in the Fiscal Responsibility Act, about how that cut is distributed. But, you know, if you just look at where the FY24 um, and FY23 defense numbers are, there's still a range of expectations. You know, I I just have to think that somehow there's going to be additional money for Ukraine. But, you know, kind of a worst case scenario for um, the defense um, outlook would be you probably still have to shield um, military personnel. I mean, you can't just lay military right. personnel off. You probably still have to uh, allocate money for uh, readiness because of the conflict with Russia and Ukraine, but also, you know, Iran and their attempt to seize commercial shipping and frankly, just to deter China, make sure nothing nothing untoward happens uh, in the in Indo-Pacific. You know, so once again, that would mean that the bulk of this cut would probably fall on procurement and research development, test and and evaluation accounts. And that could entail, you know, back of the envelope, if you do the 99% of FY23, it would be about a 5% current dollar decline um, from the FY23 level for FY24. Now, you know, what's your inflation rate assumption? You know, that... Inflation right. has to be factored into that. It's at more like a nine or 10% cut. So it's, it would be a really tough <coughs> cut for contractors to swallow. And I think ultimately it's going to have an impact on the districts and the states of some of the people who are most adamant about kind of seeing these cuts through. So we, we don't know, <laughs> no one I think is going to know until we right. get to December and see what the state of play is, but, um, it, it's a risk. It's a risk. And I don't think it's a risk that people can ignore. I wouldn't really do anything about it right now, but I would, I would have it kind of in the back of my hat as to something I am going to worry a lot more. And, and we get through October, November, December. Um,
0: and I should point out, unfortunately, that support, uh, public support for uh, Ukraine uh, is uh, uh, continued US support for Ukraine is is dipping. I think I saw a survey last week that was like something like, it's now like, you know, 45 versus 55% or something like that uh, with 55% uh, opposed for uh, increased uh, support for Ukraine. Um, Speaking of data, you uh, uh, spotted your voracious reader for anybody who knows, and you're not just a voracious reader, you're an extremely fast reader, and you have a tendency of recalling everything. Those speed reading courses in high school worked out. Um, Give us your sense on an interesting book you recently read by a couple of Polish guys, uh, who studied uh, shell production and what that tells us.
2: Well, yeah, it was just, it was just, a, it was just popped out. It's a book called Forgotten Wars: Central and Eastern Europe, 1912 to 1916. And uh, it's Cambridge University Press, but there was just a little comment um, on kind of Russian, you know, I knew there was a munitions crisis in world war one, particularly with the UK. <laughs> I really wasn't aware. Well, I should have known that, you know, the same thing happened in um, in, in Central and Eastern Europe and Russia in particular. And so you know what they basically commented on was the Russian munitions program, this is now by 1916, um, you know had started to to show uh, uh, fruit and you know, a lot of fruit, frankly. They went from about 600,000 shells per year in 1914 to 33 million shares per year. The, uh, the Austro-Hungarian austro <clears throat> empire, you know, went from around 300,000 to 2 million shells. So I just, I just, uh, and that's per month. So I just mentioned these figures in the context of, you know, what's been a pretty interesting set of debates <clears throat> in the US and Europe about how quickly um, we can ramp up collectively, you know, United States and Europe, um, 155 millimeter artillery shells. You know, the US has a goal of producing, I think it's 70 to 80,000 a month by calendar um, Q4 2020. 14. You know, we're around 24,000 right now. So right. like obviously we're not fighting World War One, you know, but kind of the two takeaways for me is okay, you know, it took kind of took two years to get the, the engines going in 1914, 1916. It looks like it's taking another year and a half or two years here. you know, but the the, the scale uh, of this is really quite pedestrian um, compared to what what was accomplished uh, in that earlier time period. And I'm sure you could find other examples of that. you know, when, when a country really wants to <clears throat> scale, they can, and maybe that's another takeaway from this. If <clears throat> do we have enough? you know, can we do more? Um, certainly there's historic evidence that there are orders of magnitude more that can be done if if people decide to do it. Uh,
0: And uh, Sash Tusa uh, on uh, the Sunday program yesterday uh, discussed, right? I mean, what utilization rates are and the the kind of scale that you need for production and what it is that the Ukrainians are shooting. And that's even before refilling all of our uh, uh, collective uh, magazines. So, you know, whereas, as we heard at the top of the show, uh, you know, from uh, Sam, the the Russians are getting a lot of support from their partners, whether it's China, North Korea, or or the uh, Iranians. Um, let me uh, quickly ask you about earnings, because we've got to go to look at the week ahead, and I want to also touch base at a recent Rand report that you found interesting. Um, any sort of big takeaways from earnings that we saw last week? Right, I mean, the last couple of weeks have been big earnings week. Uh, any weeks? Any big
2: takeaways? No, from I don't. You I don't recent? think any of the you know the the other. The trends that have been discussed earlier. Now it's kind of a different set of companies, more services companies, more smaller ones, you know, but but maybe the market reactions were a little bit more on the positive side to results. You know, Kratos, I think their stock was up 15% the day they announced, BAE Systems was up, I think four or five percent. Um, Leidos had a had a pretty good number. Um, you know, the commercial aerospace stocks, and I'm sure you guys probably talked about this in the Sunday show, you know, Triumph Group and and Spirit just tanked. Um, you know, that's not something I spent a whole lot of time on, but it still has defense uh industrial base implications. You know, if you have if you have a weak commercial aerospace sector, it it ultimately could could you know fall through to defense. And so um, you know if you didn't discuss it on Sunday on Sunday it, it certainly is something that should be picked at um, in your next upcoming show
0: uh, it is it is something we we discuss and we discuss a lot and that's also the balance uh, with our audience uh, uh Byron I've heard it from chief executives how much you know, they uh, either, you know, if they're in that part of the universe, they love our commercial coverage. If they're not in that part of the universe, they're like, wow, you guys spent too much time talking about commercial. Uh, So it is, it is, uh, it is one of those things we're trying to balance. Uh, Real quick, uh, the RAND report and why um, I think you're talking about the inflection point report and why you found it interesting.
2: Well, I think it's kind of what it kind of plays into the, the broader debate about defense and debt, federal debt, you know, but I think their, their report and If I read this correctly, I don't think this was done necessarily under the sponsorship of, for example, the office secretary of defense, but the report that they posted last week was called an inflection point, how to reverse the erosion of US and allied military power and influence. And, you know, there was a Zinger line in the opening summary of the report that basically said, um, it it has become increasingly clear that the US defense strategy and posture have become insolvent. You know what they're basically saying is, um, you know, if you look at where uh, kind of the the military trends are going in in China, in Russia, you know, what we're seeing out of the Russo-Ukraine war, this, you know, you're going to have to rely a lot more on unmanned systems. You need much more resilient uh, basing, survivability. You need much greater munition stockpiles. You need to do a lot more with allies. They didn't really put a price tag on this. Uh, They kind of mentioned in passing four percent of GDP, but they really didn't say what we should not be doing going forward. Right. And uh, so I just think it's interesting, you know, in this overall context of it's not just how much we spend on defense, but are we spending it on the right things? That's hardly a new issue, as we've discussed many times on your show, Vago. But this, this is, and I honestly, I've not read the full thing cover to cover. Um, I kind of skimmed it, but that's, that's on my list of things to do this week. But I, but I, it's just one of those reports that I thought was thoughtful and, um, and, and may help people kind of think through, you know, where we're headed in the future.
0: We, we've got about, uh, a minute, uh, anything you want to say about the Fitch, uh, downgrade from yeah. AAA to uh, AA plus, right? Just it, that I don't
2: think, I don't think I think it's it's going to be a talking point of Washington, but I don't I don't see the Fitch downgrade as as really changing the direction of the debate in Washington over uh, the debt and deficit.
0: Uh, okie doke. Uh, and uh, for the rest of your time, the distinguished gentleman from Connecticut, uh, what are uh, the things that the audience ought to be paying attention to over the coming week?
2: Well, you've got the um, it's already started, you know. Uh, the Small Satellite Conference uh, began on uh, on the 5th. It runs through the 10th. You know, that tends to be more of a technical <laughs> symposium, but small satellites are obviously a key part of, of the defense architecture, the space architecture, and, and there may be some takeaways from that. <clears throat> and then kind of dovetailing that is um, the Space and Missile Defense Symposium that takes place the 8th through the 10th in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, CSBA is holding a August 10th event, I think discussing a report that they'd released on extended surveillance in, Indo, in the Indo-Pacific, and Palo Alto Networks, which is a publicly traded kind of cybersecurity company, is holding an August 9th event on cloud security in the federal government. Um, and of course, you know there'll probably always be the pop-up things, but you know, no, no congressional hearings. And I think, you know, we are we are entering the lazy days of August, so hopefully things. Things are quiet, although in this world, that seems to be famous last words.
0: Byron, thanks so very much, as always, for joining us. Really appreciate it and look forward to having you back on next week. Have a great week in the meantime.
2: You too, Baga. Thank you very much.